Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. to The Man About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izet. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Rachel Jacobs. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, anywhere good podcasts are found, especially right here at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. <laughs> all right, so this is actually a pre-record. We're, we're, the date that this is playing is one week from today. Today is the 11th. This will be the 17th, and uh, I'm saying this only to say that we have we just finished a really great event that I have no idea how it went. That's <laughs> right. York, we're, but we're very excited. Uh, the New York City it Home Birds so Guild. Good. It was so good. We just turned Wish 30 years old this year, and uh, it's just super amazing to have the homebrewing community in New York City like this. Uh, Mary and I met through New York City Home Brewers Guild, uh, and it's just... I'm, I'm re- right now. I'm really excited for the event, and by the time this is heard, I'll be very excited that the event happened. We're we're hosting a lot of pros and joes uh, that have come through the guild. A lot of people have the alma mater of the New York City Home Brewers Guild, Brooklyn Brewery, Little Fish, King, Kings County Brewers Collective, um, Fifth Finback. Hammer, Finback, Strong Rope, um, and uh, just it's awesome to see how many home brewers are going pro brewers for this burgeoning uh, craft beer scene that's happening in New York City. Super psyched about it. What are you doing this weekend? Future self. Future self? You mean uh, the 20th? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. You hold the calendar, Mary. <laughs> Aren't you work? going maybe to Philly? Oh, I am. I'm going to the Master Brewers Association of America. We're getting up for some technical talks. Uh, and uh, I'm going to learn uh, some pretty fun stuff. There are a couple things happening. Um, I think there's a great malting talk and uh, some dry hop, modern dry hopping techniques talks. I am jealous. I'll recap later. I will admit. Yeah. I've been listening to... Um, to uh, some seminars from the the Brewers Association from the craft years past craft brew conferences to try to to get a little bit uh, more rounded knowledge in certain areas. Right now, I'm focusing on yeast, but I'm really jealous that you're going. Although this weekend, my future self, 
will be <laughs> at the uh, Rhinebeck Sheep and Wool Festival. Oh, nice. And so, um, anyway. my future self will be at the Gowanus Open Studios, oh, which awesome. is uh, basically like 50 wine and cheese parties uh, in Gowanus. Every, all the studios are within walking distance, and you can go look at cool uh, local art and visit people's studios and hang out with artists and see what they have and maybe buy stuff if you can afford it, which some, you know, some of it's affordable. But it's, it's pretty nice. Definitely inspirational, if nothing oh, else. Oh, yes. Sure. So we don't just drink beer and, uh, and ferment things. We do other things, too. It's important. I do want to give a shout-out to Alewife Brewing before we get started with our guest. We are uh, – our friend Patrick has just – opened uh alewife brewing company it's, he's owned bars for a long time and uh they just canned uh some of their beers today so we dropped off some cans so i brought them into the studio they we are, are drinking psychedelic yeah we're drinking nice labels dan birch does the art the art label oh, for all he? these yep ah, and he used to be sense. our artist for cousette libations oh, nice. so we're drinking forged in fire marzen and it's really tasty so thanks patrick so patrick <laughs> uh is opening he's long wanted to do this alewife brewing company he's but he, in his bar, Alewife, he put in a one-barrel system, which is basically a pilot system for some larger things that he'll be doing. So he just got he just did the demo on his place in Long Island City, and that'll be built. He'll be building that up for however long time it takes to open a brewery in Queens, which is longer than Brooklyn. I can tell you that <laughs> for a fact. All right, so enough about beer. Uh, let's get to our guest. Yeah. So tonight we have David Schmidt. David Schmidt, are you there? I'm here. All I'm right. here. Great to be here. So you are an author, home brewer, multilingual translator, and professional storyteller, and you're split your time currently between Mexico City and San Diego, California. That's right. Awesome. So we're super excited to have you on the uh, show. Right. So this came out of, I think I I read uh, an article you did on... Enzymergy. Yeah, on Enzymergy magazine a while back on pulque and mm-hmm. some other traditional uh, fermented beverages. I had reached out and then uh, I, I, I tracked down an email that you don't really use very much. So, <laughs> you know, a couple years later, here we are, but it's perfect timing, actually. Yeah, it's an email address. I, I check it about every five years or so. It's from a, from a parody... That I wrote of the Fifty Shades phenomena way back in the day, and uh, a really old email address is Baron von Baron von Hugenstein, and so it's it's not a serious professional email address. It's a, it's a but, uh, it was amazing to get your response. Yeah. Yeah. So let's. So what what have you been? Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like how what uh, how did you get interested in fermentations and home brewing and traditional fermented beverages? And tell us a little bit about what what you normally do as well. Yeah, well, home, home brewing goes really deep into my roots. I'm uh, at least a fifth-generation home brewer. It uh, goes back to Russia, to my great-grandparents. Um, they were Volga Germans from Russia. It's an ethnic minority, um, German last name folks who settled the Volga River and just kind of were left to themselves for a while. And and so way back in the day on the Volga ri- River in Russia, uh, you know, the great-grandparents brewed beer and probably several generations before that. And uh, so it's been passed on down through my grandpa and then my uncle and then from him to me. And uh, so, so there's this long family tradition there, of course. And, uh, but then I've spent about half of a lifetime in Mexico uh, and traveling around Mexico a lot. And I've spent a lot of time in um, very remote rural communities in Mexico. And we can, we can go more in depth into that. But uh, all across northern and southern Mexico, and the more time I spend in these communities, and, and these are indigenous communities uh, where people don't speak Spanish, they speak a native language that has been spoken 
on this continent for thousands of years before English or Spanish ever existed here. And so these are the, the really ancient old cultures of Mexico, and almost all of these cultures, I discovered, have something that they brew. They have a fermented beverage. And uh, so it was just by way of experience, of interacting with those people, uh, with the Raramuri natives of northern Mexico, uh, mixed-deck people in southern Mexico, and many other indigenous groups, and spending time in, in these communities, I saw what a central place these home-brewed beverages had in, in these very ancient cultures. And so I was fascinated to, to come across that and realize the commonalities that they had with my own people, with the Volga Germans from Russia that I'm descended from. And we would start talking about, uh, I, you know, I met guys who, who brewed all these different uh, drinks, pulque, tesguino, uh, tepache, and we would talk about the, the techniques and the, <laughs> the pitfalls that you come across. And there was this there would always be this moment where this spark would be ignited and we'd look into each other's eyes and something just crossed space and time and we, it was like we both went back thousands of years to those first humans who discovered the magic of fermentation and realized, wow, this is, we're doing the same thing. And our families have been doing this for generations. And it's that, that point that connects so many different human cultures back to ancient Egypt and Babylonia and Africa. And, and and so I was. It, it was an almost mystical, spiritual tr- uh, experience to to come across that to to be in a, a culture so different from your own, and then realize that what what connects you is this very traditional kind of brewing. And I think there's something magical there. I agree. Now I have so many questions, but I have to ask. So do you have records from your uh, your grandfather or the your ancestors that brewed before you? No. Or is it, wish, was it all handed uh, down orally? Yeah, it was all orally. It was just, um, yeah, just father-to-son traditions. Um, and then my grandpa, I mean, he was he was first-generation American. Uh, he grew up in Nebraska, then moved to California. And so he, he really assimilated into what was the, the American culture at the time. You know, 1940s, 50s, American culture was on that big white braid kick, where it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was this kick of everything that is industrialized, uh, and packaged and machine made is uh, is better. It's superior, and uh, so unfortunately, whatever ancient techniques, uh, great grandfather Jakob Schmidt had used in Russia, my grandfather sort of substituted all those out for buying the canned malt with the hops <laughs> already in it and brewing it. Uh, but that being said, his his technique for actually brewing, it was very you know very similar to uh, the ancestors in that it was all eyeballed. He wasn't using recipes. None of these extreme sterilization processes that we, that we have in, you know, <laughs> modern day homebrew. He would he had this open kiln going in the no the kiln's not the right word a vat just a vat of open wort going in the garage, and I don't even think to put a lid on it. I think he just had like a wooden thing to keep the sawdust out of it, and that was <laughs> that was about as sterile as his process got. Um, so yeah, it was a very, very old school process, but using very kind of modern industrialized ingredients. But yeah, by my generation, there's this return back to, you know, the, the really old craft ways and wanting to get back to the most natural way possible, which I think is very common for a lot of things in my generation. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, some of those ancient ways. Uh, first of all, we are especially intrigued by, um, pulque. So, can you tell us about like pulque? What is it? And uh, yeah, oh, and how is it? Uh, and how is it made? 
We're, tri- we're tripping over yeah. headphones over here. <laughs> Hold on. So pulque. Yeah, so pulque. So pulque. Yeah, so pulque is one of the oldest uh, fermented beverages of Mexico, and it is the nectar of the agave plant, uh, also known as the maguey plant um, in Mexico. It's it's the nectar of the agave plant that is fermented, and that's all it is. Um, so it's very, very basic production process, and it's a drink that goes back uh, thousands and thousands of years into Mexico's history. One of the one of the main goddesses in, in the Mexica, the Aztec pantheon, was Mayahuel, and she was the goddess of fermentation. Her, her husband had discovered how to create pulque. Her husband was Pantecat. He was another god, and he was kind of a Prometheus figure. He discovered the Ocpatli root, which was a root that people would put into the pulque when it was being fermented. Uh, they gave it an infusion and kind of a uh, hops-type equivalent. It would add a bitter flavor. And uh, he, for, for creating this process, that god, Pantecat, he actually had his own month in the Aztec calendar. The Panquetzalistli mm. was the name of the month. So, so we're talking about this very ancient tradition. Uh, Mayahuel was uh, you know, often depicted with multiple breasts, the symbol of fertility, fecundity. And, and uh, she, she's related to 400 sacred rabbits that are part of the, the sacred world um, the Aztec pantheon, and, and every one of those 400 rabbits, it's a different kind of drunkenness. So mm-hmm. each one, I mean, think like the seven dwarfs with like happy, sleepy, grumpy, only multiply that by 400 and 400 ways that you could be drunk. And uh, so it's about celebrating this uh, <laughs> this mystical experience. And and in, in the Aztec civilization, pulque, it was not a recreational drink. It was a primarily a sacred drink, like as in with a lot of ancient cultures, uh, including the ancient cultures of Europe that created beer and wine. It was the, the idea of getting drunk for being drunk's sake uh, was a foreign concept for a lot of those ancient cultures. Um, and the ancient, ancient Mexico is no exception to that. So it was, it was a, had a sacramental purpose of connecting you to the sacred, to the divine. Um, at different points in history, it was reserved specifically for people who needed that sacred intoxication to have a mystical experience. Uh, and a lot of those people were people who were about to become close to death or going to have a brush with death. So it was soldiers getting ready to go into battle or the priestly class or the elderly. Um, but it was you know, never to be treated lightly. It was always something sacred to be treated with respect. So, so that's all this ancient history behind Pulque. Uh, that said, it's still drank in Mexico, and there are hundreds of communities, uh, mostly in rural Mexico, where people still make pulque by taking the agave plant, um, waiting for it to reach maturity when it produces this shoot, uh, which there are dozens of varieties of agave. Um, if any listeners are in the western part of the U.S., they've probably seen wild agave growing in the desert and the mountains, and you can spot it by that shoot that sticks way up into the air. And to make pulque, you uh, what they call it, castrating the plant. You cut that shoot off once it's reached maturity, and that's when it's producing all the fermentable sugars. And then you hollow out an opening inside the heart of the plant, and the nectar is going wild. It's being produced. So you go back to it every day and, and suck out that nectar, traditionally with this long hollow gourd, um, collect the nectar and, and store it away, and scrape the inside of the plant to agitate it. Do that several times. And uh, and that is that your one chance to get that 
sweet nectar known as aguamiel and then ferment it into pulque. The, ag- the aguamiel, how consistent is it uh, by way of the, uh, the constitution of the sugar? Is it pretty uni- universal? I mean, it's fairly consistent, but yeah, there is some variety. It's, it's usually a more low alcohol drink. So it's uh, typically it runs between the four and five percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, when you're, whenever you're talking about a, a natural plant like that, obviously there's going to be variety. And, and every now and then I've come across bouquets where I'm like, whoa, this, was, <laughs> this plant was castrated in its prime. <laughs> it's a nice little castrati. And uh, so you, you get some variety, but it's, it's interesting because it's, uh, it's, it's a typically low alcohol beverage. The drink, have either of you ever tried pulque have, or seen videos or photos of it? Yes. I've never, we, have, we haven't tried it, but we've seen videos and I've seen photos. It looks yeah. like a milky white color. That's very interesting. Yeah. The, very different from like agave you buy in like the store. Absolutely. Yeah, the consistency is very interesting. It's it's this very viscous, like slimy, milky white drink. Yeah, very much um, like aloe. Yeah, yeah, very similar to aloe. And I think the, the agave plant is related to aloe vera, actually. Yeah. And uh, so it's that you drink it when you, in modern day places where you drink pulque, um, I, I live in Mexico City a lot of the year, and you can find pulquerias. And there are these pulque bars and traditionally, they're very low-key, like low-budget bars where it's just like folding tables and chairs um, and nothing else but that. And there may be some pictures hung on the walls. And and uh, you go in, they serve it up in these big uh, glass steins, and it's just this big glass stein of this uh, viscous white liquid. The taste the taste is not bad, even for first-timers. Most people have trouble with the, the consistency of it because it, they say it feels like slime. <laughs> But uh, but the taste is actually it's it's sort of a sour, very mild taste to it. Um, but yeah, it never gets very high in alcohol content. And when I've gone into these pulquerias and, and talked to the guys who are regulars, it's interesting because uh, some of the guys I talked to, they believe it or not, they got cured off of alcoholism by drinking pulque. Huh. And it's like it's almost like it has it has just enough alcohol to wean them off of the hard stuff. But I've talked to guys who swear by it and say they never went back to. You know, they had very problematic alcoholic histories of, you know, heavy drinking and, and medical problems and couldn't keep a job. And they got weaned off of that with pulque and never went back to it. Like, mm-hmm. they never went back to hard liquor after drinking pulque. That's pretty cool. Wow. So you mentioned... I, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I think part of that is the nutrition, the nutritious content of pulque. It's an extremely nutrition nutritious drink. Um, being just this pure agave nectar... It uh, just has tons of, of different vitamins, minerals, and there's an old saying in rural Mexico in a lot of towns. People say, le falta un grado, un grado para ser carne. Like, it's just a hair away from being meat with how mm-hmm. nutritious it is. <laughs> it's like if you don't, you don't have any meat to feed your kids, you, you give them a glass of pulque instead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's an extremely nutritious drink. So you had mentioned that people sometimes use a, this root to kind of give balance um, like a little bit of bitterness. Are, do people flavor it with other things as well? I know I've read about in some of the pulquerias they add flavors, but but generally speaking, like the homemade pulque. Yeah, that's a that's a modern take on it. I mean, modern, we're talking within the last few hundred years. Um, and in, in the ancient Mexican civilizations, there were dozens of varieties of pulque. 
uh, there were just those recorded by the Spanish invaders when they came. Um, you know, they kept copious records of the culture and the civilization. And there were, there were dozens of different varietals back in the old days. And nowadays, it's almost a return to that tradition by making these modern infused pulques. And, uh, and so you have a, a lot of the urban pulquerias will have that. Uh, it's not as common in the countryside. In the countryside, it's sort of seen as a bastardization of, of something that's, that's good enough on its own. Uh, but in the in the city in pulquerias, you will find typically if you walk into so this is the the experience of walking into a pulqueria. Uh, you go in. Typically, there are a couple of swinging saloon type double doors, and you walk in. And if you've if you've never been in there before, you'll have a few seconds of that like old west saloon, like the record scratches and the music stops, and somebody's cigarette falls out of his mouth, and everyone's staring at you. But then you you just have to be cool and greet everybody and. And order a glass, and then eventually you'll meet like your best friends for life after that. <laughs> and but in that pulqueria, you sit down and you look at the counter, and it'll be a really simple bar, and there'll be four or five uh, huge glass jars on the on the counter, and those are the types of pulque they're serving. So the one on the on the left will usually be the regular pulque. It's just going to be a, a viscous white, kind of milky off white, and then you'll see others with a, a kind of light color to it. And there'll be fruit-infused ones, uh, strawberry, maracuya, passion fruit, different types of fruit. Uh, typically, there'll be a peanut one, which is actually really tasty. It's got kind of a mm. peanut butter taste to it. And then there might be two, one or two savory, salty-flavored ones. So you'll, you might have one pulque that's been infused with clamato, which is you know the, the spicy tomato similar to a Bloody Mary type of flavor, uh, which people sometimes also mix with their beer, which I think is blasphemy, but... To each his own. Uh, the, so yeah, those are very common. In 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 beer, we we have hops, and generally higher alcohol can be can be that, uh, which helps to the stability of the beer. What is the general shelf life of a pulque? Of a pulque. Well, see, that's probably the reason why you haven't tried any pulque is because its shelf life is like it's counted in hours yeah. or days. <laughs> it and nobody has found a very reliable way to preserve it. And to can it or bottle it, there've been there've been attempts. I've tasted a few canned pulques. They are just god awful. Yeah, I've, I've had a canned pulque as well. Yeah, it was horrible. Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did it taste like? It actually had that what I like to call butera, you know, butera kind of that Ooh, yeah. baby vomit, just really, <laughs> you know, kind oh, of like so. rotten New York City trash in oh. the summer smell. Which we taste all the time, and we don't need we don't we get enough. Of it. We don't need more so, of that. So, well, I, yeah, but yeah, going to that, look, what? How do you know when a pulque has gone wrong, or when it when it? What are the typical? What's the typical flavor of a pulque gone too many hours? <laughs> I think it, it, it veers way more to the sour side, and and yeah, a few days later, just like you said, it's that that New York trash baby vomit taste, <laughs> as opposed to adult vomit, which is obviously much tastier. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it does. It gets. I mean, it tastes rotten. Really, it tastes. It goes from sour to overly sour to then just getting a rotten taste to it. And because it's a, um, it's. And I mean, I'm wondering. It's it's making a comeback in Mexico, and I'm so I'm wondering if now that it's kind of become hip with a lot of hipster culture. You know, hipster culture exists in in Mexico and a lot of other countries. And so with with a lot of the hipster movement, you have this desire to return to traditional things and the old way, the slow way of doing things, and uh, but also revamping those traditions. 
so like Bulgarias for a, for about a hundred years, they were kind of kept on the the edges of Mexican society, and beer replaced pulque for a long time, and uh, for and that begins around the early twentieth century, and at the time there was a dictator Porfirio Diaz who was in charge, and he loved everything foreign. And there was, he was all about, there's a term malinchismo, which refers to someone who loves foreign things more than they love Mexican things. And Porfirio Diaz, he was like, anything from Europe is obviously going to be vastly better, so we got to bring in everything European and get rid of all of our traditional stuff. And uh, so he was inviting in all, all these business people from Europe, and some of those people who came over to Mexico were uh, German brewers. And so they brought in this the culture of the Reinheitsgebot, you know, this idea of the that that old German law of, of purity and, and all these rules about how to make beer. And they launched a massive smear campaign against Pulque at that time to convince people to say, hey, no, our traditional stuff is bad, it's it's unsanitary, it's dirty, and the German foreign stuff is good and it's clean and sanitary. And so there was actually a massive smear campaign of ads. They made up urban legends that some people believe about pulque today. They they said it was fermented with human excrement. They said that was what what they used to, as a starter to get it fermented. That's which I don't I don't even know if that would work. I've never <laughs> tried that with my own home brew, but I don't know. Maybe there's something to it. No. <laughs> yeah, they, I wouldn't try it. They uh, so there was this whole whole campaign of of smearing pulque and saying drink beer, don't drink pulque, and it worked. And millions of people left the pulquerias, and they became a really working class thing. They were kind of on the, on the margins of society, and um, but it was this very bare bones working class thing for many years. But in recent years, it's been making this comeback, and now there are new modern pulquerias uh, where they're playing, um, you know, playing modern hip music, and they're making new kinds of pulque. With all that to say, what I wonder is with this revival of pulque. Maybe somebody will develop a technology to preserve it and can it and bottle it in the same way that people figured out how to do with beer, which for centuries, beer was the same same thing. You had to drink it fairly fresh within the first couple months of it being brewed or it would go bad. Yep. Yeah, definitely. We are going to take a brief break. We'll be right back with more for men about it. For men about it. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. One Hundred Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to twelve-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. Welcome back to Femen about it. <laughs> All right, so we've been talking with David Schmidt about 
traditional Mexican beverages. So we were just talking about pulque, but you mentioned uh, a few more beverages, one of which I have never heard of. Um, so what are what are some of the other beverages that you experienced down in Mexico? So there are three main ones that I've experienced that I've that I've written about for Zymergy and Brew Your Own. Um, and so the other two, one is Desguino, which is corn beer, and that's brewed by the Raramuri or Tarumara natives of northern Mexico in the Sierra Madre Mountains. And uh, so I wrote a whole article about that for Brew Your Own in 2012. Uh, that's that one, one of up. them. And the third... The third one is called uh, Tepache, which where I've tried that, it's been in southern Mexico in uh, the state of Oaxaca, a huge state with a, a lot of ethnic diversity, 13 different languages spoken just in that state of Oaxaca. And uh, so deep, deep in the mountains in remote rural places, I've gotten to try the Tepache, which is sugarcane juice that's been fermented. And uh, so you ferment it and it's Tepache. And a lot of people drink it, just that fermented sugarcane juice, but it's also used by the moonshiners in the region to turn it into liquor, aguardiente. Oh. And, uh, and I've, tried, I've tried both. I have a, a good friend of mine is a, a moonshiner and a tepache brewer in the mountains of northwest Oaxaca. Uh, he's a Mazatec native man. He's been doing it, and he, he's somebody that I really connected with because we talked about how our, our grandparents and great-grandparents used to do it. And like he's still using the same yeast strain that his great great grandpa used, and and for all we know, it might go back to one of these ancient civilizations, like before the Spanish ever came to Mexico. So the tepache that I have been familiar with um, was uh, made with pineapples. Yeah. So right. is that pretty con- like? So obviously, there's many var- variations. Do people use pineapples as well as the cane sugar? They do. So the one you've tried is a very mildly fermented. Uh, drink with pineapple and piloncillo brown sugar. Yes. Yep. Uh, so the term tepache is kind of a catch-all for a lot of different fermented beverages. Um, I mean, almost the same way technically beer means any kind of grain beverage that's fermented, right? So technically sake would be a beer, uh, anything with a, a grain. And tepache is a similar kind of catch-all term. So the, the tepache that I had in, in the mountains of Oaxaca was the sugarcane tepache, but but in Mexico City and other places, you will hear the same word used for mildly fermented pineapple juice um, and other drinks also. So the cane sugar, how is that? What's that process? It's, uh, oh, it's, it's so much fun to experience. So the, so the first time I, I met my friend Domingo, uh, the moonshiner friend, I, uh, my friends just told me, they said, you want to go see where they make tepache and aguardiente, the, where the still is. So we had to hike way down the mountain from the town that I was staying in. Uh, it's this hour-long hike going through the through the woods and jungle, and and then we're going through this sugarcane field, and and that first whiff hits me, that smell of, of fresh yeast and fermenting, and I say, okay, I, I know we're close. I, I can just feel it in my bones. And then we get through the sugarcane, and we the, come to the edge of the sugarcane field. And there's this clearing, and it's perched on the edge of a mountain, and you can see for hundreds of miles all around, just picturesque mountains and valleys and rivers, and the still is perched just like right on the edge of that clearing, underneath a little little roof of, of palm fronds, and there's two big uh, blast, plastic drums where the tepache is fermenting. Uh, a bunch of the guys are, are cutting the sugar cane, and they're feeding it into a mill that is a motor motor run mill um, and it just presses the sugar cane and he has something that collects the, the sugar cane juice and it, it runs down a tube 
and uh, it's just uh, this this guy Domingo and his workers he's hired for the day, and they're feeding the sugar cane into this thing, collecting it slowly. There's swarms of bees everywhere because they love the sugar cane juice. And uh, so I, I met the guy, and, and he invited me to try some. And, uh, and he had two drums, each of them just these enormous plastic drums as high as my head. Uh, so I peeked into one of them, and uh, one was a lighter color than the other. And you could tell which one had been fermenting for longer than the other one was the one where he's feeding the fresh juice into. And so I got to try both of them, and both of them really delicious in their own right. Because the half-fermented one, it's it's got the fresh sugar cane still coming into it, so it's obviously a lot sweeter. The other one was you know nice and dry and, and sour, uh, with but both of them with that, that fresh yeasty taste to them. Uh, now, the, the sweet one is dangerous because it's half-fermented, so it keeps fermenting inside your stomach so you might only have two glasses of it but that that keeps getting you drunk for like days after you drink it <laughs> that's the auto brewery syndrome i've heard of this <laughs> yeah i've heard of that syndrome <laughs> and yeah now... it is it's it's a dangerous i mean i i woke up the next day and i still felt drunk <laughs> <laughs> um do they fla- use now? You said he distills por- portion of that as well. Do they use flavors in that as well in the tapache? No, it's just uh, it's just a straight straight sugar cane that's been fermented. Cool. Yeah, it, I mean, I looked into the vat. It, it's no frills. It's I look in and I see the the foam from the yeast on the top of the you know he had to skim it off. There are just a bunch of wasps and bees hanging out on it too so he he took a plastic cup and kind of moved the foam out of the way and moved the bees out of the way and dipped it into the mess and and i just i put my faith in my and all these ancient gods of fermentation and said well i hope they did their work distilling you know yeah. purifying this and yeah. i didn't get sick from it that felt fine <laughs> yeah now the um you said is he the one who uses yeast that he's been using for generations Right, that's him. So yeah, how does he father, keep his, his grandfather. yeast? Does he have like a magic stick? How does it work? <laughs> well, he, it's like the, the sourdough you know, bread okay. style. You just keep harvest a little starter from the last batch okay. and pitch it okay. into the, the fresh sugar cane. And I mean, it's there's such an ongoing culture of the, the tepache, the aguardiente, um, and some people just like to drink the unfermented sugar cane juice as a you know, sweet, soft drink also. So there's enough demand in the region that there's always a fresh batch going, and there has been for at least a hundred years. Okay. So sh- it never it never gets old enough to for the yeast to die out. And sugarcane is a year-round crop, I assume. Then. That is a good question that I wish I had an answer for. I'm yeah. not sure That's if it to is. Look, we'll have to I'll look it up later. Right now. And then I want to actually the the beverage that I actually know the least about, except I didn't realize tapache was uh, straight cane sugar in that part of the world. But is this corn beer? Tell us about this corn beer. Yeah, so that's another really ancient tradition, and that's with the Raramuri people, um, also known as the Tarahumara. And they're in northern Mexico in the Sierra Madre, uh, deep in the mountains. And uh, for them also, like like a lot of these cultures we're talking about, it was and is a very sacred tradition. But it's it's it has such a central place in the Raramuri culture that... Uh, so, so the corn beer is called uh, tesguino, and uh, watari is the name in the native language. In Spanish, it's called tesguino. And tesguino, it, it's been made by these people for as long as these people have existed, just thousands and thousands of years. 
according to their tradition, God, God's name is Onoruame, and Onoruame gave humans beer to, to ease our pain and our troubles and make us happy. So it's the kind of thing that reminds you of that Benjamin Franklin quote, right, where he says yes. beer is proof that God loves us and wants <laughs> us to be happy. So really reminiscent of that. And, uh, and the, the Raramuri people believe that, that God still gets thirsty, and God likes to have a drink sometimes. And so whenever they have a ceremony opening a new plot of land uh, that's going to be tilled, or when a baby's been born, the Tezhuino, that corn beer, is always present. And there will be a, a priest or a shaman who takes a gourd of, of the corn beer and offers it up to the four cardinal directions, offers it up to God symbolically, pours it out for Onruame to drink, and then after that, the other people drink it with God. But there's this idea that God is always drinking the corn beer with the people at those ceremonies. Cool. And did, did you get to look, uh, look into the process of how that's made? I did. I spent some time there. That was in 2002 when I was in college. Uh, I was a skinny college student. I hadn't developed my beer gut yet. That's how long ago it was. And I went up there for the summer. I uh, went with a, a friend of mine from, uh, from Ensenada, from northern Mexico. She invited me to go to visit her family. Her family is all Radamuri native people. And so we went deep into the mountains. I mean, it's like we're talking a three-day bus drive and then another day on horseback. There were no roads back then that went into the place we were going. Uh, just super remote place. And I got to spend some good time with, with the Native people there. And, and I, I saw how this – and the production process of that, too, it's very very basic. Um, I mean, there's a few more steps to it, obviously, because when you're talking about corn, you need to malt it in order to get the sugars out of it. Yep. Whereas pulque or tepache, you've got an already fermentable sugar in the nectar. Uh, whereas with corn, of course, you have to malt it just like you would with barley, uh, get the you know get it germinating, and uh, then and then boil it for a few days, and then ferment it for a couple of days, and then it's ready, and you've got pesquino. So when they, because I know, okay, chicha is a is a similar beverage, and they generally use because corn doesn't convert itself, right, from starch to sugar automatically. So, pe- you know, people generally, chicha is made using uh, enzymes yes. from our s- saliva. So is there, what are they using, what kind of process are they using? They're just boiling for, they're germinating, then boiling, or is there any other additional? Yeah, as far as I could tell, they just germinate the corn and, and boil it. There, I mean, there might be some places where, we know where they pitch in some other sugars as mm-hmm. well. Um, but in the places I was, it was, I think it was just, just germinated. And, um, I mean, we might have to research up on that one too. Um, but if it, if it be, was a lower alcohol beverage, then it, that would make sense, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So. It never gets really above 4%. Yeah. You, and it's, and, and the, it has this very central place in a lot of the traditions, um, where people get together, they have these events called Tesquinadas, where, where the whole community comes together to plow somebody's field. Like if I need my corn picked or my field plowed, I make the tesquino and I invite everybody over. They work my land and I pay them in tesquino. But and people get drunk, but it takes a long time to get drunk on tesquino. It's uh, we're talking like entire, you know, you know, trash drum size buckets of uh, <laughs> of this stuff. And the whole community is just uh, working and drinking all day, and it takes several hours to start to get intoxicated from it. And what is, what's the texture of this and, and what does it taste like? 
Ooh, it's uh, I, I miss this, Guino. It's I had a I had a beer once. It was some little label that I haven't found for the past like fifteen years. I can't remember what it was, and it was terrible. But it reminded me of this, Guino. <laughs> and I, and I don't I don't know why that is. Um, it's yeah, I mean it's got a grainy texture because it's it's not filtered or anything. It's just that that corn mash. Um, yeah, I suppose the the analogous concept would be corn mash that moonshiners in the American Southeast would make whiskey out of. So, however, however made they they made their corn mash that they distilled. That's the same a similar process for Desguino, for getting that um, fermented beverage. So it's uh, yeah, it's just like the ground corn. It's got that corn mealy um, taste. There's, I mean, the other things I would compare it to are, are traditional things from Mexico, also. There's a drink in in the south called pinol, which is uh, no pozol, sorry, uh, which is ground corn and, and water. So it's sort of a sort of a primitive energy drink that if you need a quick pick me up of some calories, you just put cornmeal and water and mix it together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the taste it's a it is a very sour taste. Also, it um, yeah, it's a fairly fairly mild palate. It's just a basically sour taste. You definitely do get the, the corn flavor to it. I mean, think of something between a good corn tortilla and a nice sour mash with no no hops or bitters in it. Mm-hmm. Cool. With a texture kind of like corn, uh, uh, like cream corn? Uh, no, no, it's like if you mix... Cream, like more grainy. Green, yeah. Grainy cream. Like if you would mix cornmeal with water, kind of. Okay. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I love corn. I love the flavor of corn, but a sour than the sour corn. I got I want. I'm so intrigued by this by this beverage. <laughs> I'm also intrigued by that brewery that that uh, that you say tasted horrible. I want to find that. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I've searched for it because it it's the closest thing I've ever found that tasted like this. We know, which yeah. you have to take that three day bus ride and one day mule ride into the mountains to <laughs> to get that taste anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I had one more quick question uh, to back it up a little bit about pulque. Um, I wanted to ask about a comparison between uh, pulque and its uh, the more uh, the more popular beverage in America, uh, tequila. So, um, and what is the similarity or difference in the process? Are they different completely, or is it just distilled? Uh, well, the big difference is dis- distillation, um, and there are yeah, two big drinks that are well-known from Mexico, tequila, and then it's more refined cousin, which is mezcal, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've, you've heard of mezcal yes, as well. smoky uh, tequila, basically. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, mezcal is, it's, it's like the scotch of Mexico. Yeah. It is, it's hundreds of varieties, an extremely complex palate to it. Uh, you can find mezcals that, that taste like uh, freshly cut grass, that taste citrusy, that taste smoky, I mean, just like scotch from Scotland. There are so many different varietals. Um, and so people who are big into mezcal will argue that tequila is actually a sub-varietal of mezcal, being a distilled beverage made from agave nectar. So um, now the difference there with mezcal is that the hearts of the agave are harvested and then roasted, and then a mash is made from their nectars, and that mash is fermented and then distilled. Uh, so the the big difference is yeah fermented versus distilled. Um, it's my I've, I've toured a few tequila and mezcal factories. 
I never leave sober enough to remember what I learned about the process. Uh, but if I'm recalling right, it's not they're, they're not making pulque and then distilling that pulque. They're harvesting the entire agave heart altogether and then, you know, make, using that to uh, press it uh, and or roast it and, and then press it and then get the nectar out of it, ferment it, and then distill it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we're running out of time, yes. unfortunately. Um, but I know that oh, you've no. been all over the world and and, um, and explored a lot of different beverages. So, And you had told us in an email that you had recently been to Ethiopia. So I would just love to hear about one beverage that you experienced there that was fermented. Yes. So Ethiopia is it, this ancient culture also. You know, it goes back to Bible times and long before that. And there's this drink that's a constant, which is mead, and it's called Taj, spelled T-E-J, T-E-J in English lettering. Uh, Taj is, is mead in Ethiopia, and it's one of the world's oldest cultures that has been making mead for, uh, for since prehistory, for a long time. And, people, and it's beautiful because people still make it there. And now in a lot of the Western world, you know, the, the Vikings and these old... Nordic European people had mead traditions that in a lot of places they got lost, they died out. But in Ethiopia, it's still a living tradition. And I was there for, I spent a month there, I was there for a friend's wedding. And at the wedding, on every table, there were, there were bottles of Johnny Walker Black Label, and there were buckets of beer, and there were bottles of homemade mead, the wow. homemade tuj on every table. That's awesome. So you've got the modern and the ancient all together on the same table. That's amazing. So I know uh, there is, was actually a uh, metery in New York State that was making te- a variation of Tej for a while. I don't know if they're still doing it, but there was. But Tej has a unique ingredient, from what I recall in my memory, that sets it apart slightly from mead. Is that correct? Does that sound right? It's it has a lot of varietals to it. I tried a lot of different homemade Tej in Ethiopia, and the the palate was really varied. Also, some of them were were much more. Sour, sweet. Um, some of them do have, uh, and yeah, there are some ingredients that are added to it. It's not a given, though. Like, okay. there yeah. are a lot of tuj that uh, do not have anything but but honey to them. But yeah, they're just like the meat in ancient Europe. There, you'll find a lot of um, yeah, a lot of varieties of things that can be added to it. Awesome! Oh, um, wow, really cool. Yeah, we. Uh, well, we'll have to have you back to like talk more in depth about that uh, yes. at some point in the future. So, talk about I'd love you, to. you before we wrap up. We'd love to, for you to just um, you have our published author, so you've written a book that was published. Tell us about that, and then tell us about if people want to. Uh, and you also do a podcast, I believe. So, please, if people want to find out more information, where would they do so? And tell us a little bit about your book before we go. Shameless self promotion. <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so I have several books. Uh, you can find them all. You can find them on Amazon under my name, David J. Schmidt. Uh, one of the main ones is Holy Ghosts, True Tales from a Haunted Christian College. Uh, last year, I released a book on a haunted clown motel in the Nevada desert that mm-hmm. I visited and, and got the crap scared out of me. One of the most terrifying places I've ever been. <laughs> so, so that book is Three Nights in the Clown Motel. Uh, you can find those books on Amazon or on my website, which is holyghoststories.com. That's the website. And on any of the other social media, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Holy Ghost Stories, uh, you can look me up on social media. And also the podcast is one I host with a co-host with Grant Morgan. It's called To Russia with Love. 
and that's a podcast all about Russia. I lived in Russia for a while with my friend Grant, and so it's talking all about Russian culture, history, telling our wild stories. So you can find that in the same place you hear this podcast, anywhere podcasts are available, Stitcher, iTunes, anywhere else, to Russia with love. And again, my website for my books is holyghoststories.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on. This is really cool because we've we've talked to people who have exper- like been to Mexico and had pulque, but it's Not really ha- hard like to this, get yeah. yeah to get information um, and to and to really talk to somebody that knows a lot about it that's able to explain it and and really in a way that makes it relatable. So this was incredibly awesome to speak to you, and I'm glad we finally got in touch. And we would love to have you on again to talk about more about cool uh, beverages around the world. Yeah, thanks for uh, answering our email. We will update our Rolodex accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. Yeah. It was great talking to you guys. And keep doing keep doing this podcast. I mean, it, it's great that so many people are excited about the old traditional brews and they're making a comeback. Uh, that makes me really happy. Me too. Thank you so much again, David. And we'll be in touch. For men about it. For men about it. For men about <laughs> Thank you. it. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.